Well, last week we began a series on what the Bible says about leadership in the local church, and we learned together that the Bible plainly and simply establishes a two-office system of church government consisting of both elders and deacons. And we saw how the pattern of the New Testament is that every local church should be governed, ruled, led, however you want to say it, by a group of godly, spiritually mature men called elders who are assisted by another group of godly, spiritually mature men called deacons who relieve the elders of the temporal matters of the church so they can focus on their spiritual duties as shepherds of the flock. And so every individual church is responsible for recognizing and appointing elders and deacons who can serve as leaders of that particular church. And the process of selecting and installing elders and deacons is modeled for us uh, in the pages of the New Testament, particularly in the book of Acts. And we laid out a a simple four-step process that we follow here at Lakeside Bible Church that, number one, with the ongoing input of the congregation, the elders of the church, uh, are bound to, uh, to recognize men who have a desire to serve as elders or deacons and who appear to be spiritually qualified. And then secondly, those elders examine uh, those men privately to determine whether or not they're qualified to serve. And then thirdly, the elders present uh, those men to the church for their evaluation, their affirmation to see uh, if they uh, pass the test that they are above reproach in the eyes of the congregation Uh, that they will serve uh, as leaders. And then finally, if they receive the the, the congregation's stamp of approval, uh, the elders then formally install them as elders and deacons through prayer and the laying on of hands. And we see that pattern uh, in the book of Acts. Now, if you weren't here last Sunday, you need to know that we're in the process of testing four men right now who who were presented last week uh, as candidates for the office of elder and deacon. Mike Goins uh, is a candidate for the office of elder, and Ken Parkin, Mark Sanderson, and Eric Presley are candidates for the office of deacon. And uh, just the mere fact that these men would agree to uh, a process like this, uh, to me, is, is, um, is ind- indicative of their character, um, that they're willing to go through this two-week period of public testing to see if they're above reproach in the eyes of this body of believers. Can you imagine what that would be like? We say, hey, we're going to test you this week. What does everybody think about this guy? What does everybody think about you, right? Uh, pretty, uh, pretty formidable uh, position to be in. And again, if, if you have any questions or concerns about any of these men's character, you know of anything that may disqualify them from serving as an elder or deacon uh, in our church, then please, please, please talk to us as elders, pastors, privately, uh, put it in writing. Uh, we, we are interested in any valid objections or accusations that, that are biblically based, and, and we need to consider all those things as, as leaders of the church. So, again, just remember, this is not a popularity contest. Um, this is not an election. It's a testing of character based on the principles of God's Word. Now, I was thinking this week that for some of you, our selection process, uh, or just the selection of these four men in particular, of all the other men of the church, it, it might seem a bit random. You're, you're, you may be sitting there last week going, well, why them? And, and why not him? And why not me? Well, well, first of all, our commitment as elders is that everyone who has a desire to serve as an elder or deacon and is qualified to serve as an elder or deacon should be an elder or deacon. That's our perspective on Scripture. Our job is to recognize, to locate those men that have a desire and that are qualified. We have no limits on our leadership team as far as we only can have a certain amount. We only need seven. We only need ten. Um, we, we have no terms that you only can serve three years and then you have to step off the board. We don't have any of those. We don't see those limits or terms in Scripture. And so we just think that everyone who has a desire to serve as an elder or deacon, is qualified to serve as an elder or deacon, should serve as an elder or deacon. No matter how many that is and no matter how long uh, that lasts. Secondly, You need to understand that not everyone that we ask to consider being an elder or deacon is interested in being an elder or deacon. Um, Over the years, we've had men turn us down for various reasons, and we appreciate them. We respect them for that. Um, 
Thirdly, not everyone who may want to be an elder or deacon is qualified or equipped to be an elder or deacon. All that to say, the decision of who we select as candidates for elder and deacon is not random, it's not arbitrary, it's not subjective. Um, Why? Because the Bible does not just establish an elder deacon system of church government, but it also includes for us a a systematic uh, objective list of principles or qualifications for determining who should be allowed to serve as an elder or deacon. The kind of men who who should fill these, these offices is made very clear in the New Testament, and no other portion of the New Testament more clearly, uh, more specifically, lays out the criteria for choosing elders and deacons than the pastoral epistles, particularly 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. Uh, For this morning, I want to invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I want to read for you uh, Paul's list of qualifications for overseers and deacons or pastors and elders uh, would be another term for overseers and deacons. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1, Paul writes, it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires or desires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside of the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men also must first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife, and good managers of their children and their own households, for those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, it's important that we understand the historical context of this particular list of qualifications. Uh, Paul was writing to Timothy, who he had left in charge of the church in Ephesus. And from its inception, the church at Ephesus had been blessed with godly leadership. In fact, Paul himself had founded the church, had ministered there for three years. He stayed in Ephesus longer than any other place that he ever visited. And during that time, he trained and ordained a group of godly elders to lead the church after he left. Unfortunately, just as he had predicted in Acts chapter 20, not long after he left, some of the elders began to teach false doctrine and lead the people astray from the truth. And so when Paul was released from his first Roman imprisonment, he immediately returned to Ephesus and he disciplined the two most prominent elders, Hymenaeus and Alexander. You can see that in chapter 1, verse 20. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. After dealing with this leadership crisis in the church, he left his young protege Timothy to to straighten out the the mess that these bad elders had made in the church, and he wrote him this letter to help him with this daunting task of restoring proper order to the church in Ephesus. And at the heart of his task was the need to reestablish a godly leadership team. Based on the contents of this letter, some of the leaders were uh, teaching false doctrine, Some women had apparently been allowed into leadership positions. Uh, They were exercising authority over men. Uh, Some other men had fallen away from the faith. They were advocating celibacy and and, and abstinence from certain foods. They become legalistic. And other leaders uh, needed to be publicly rebuked and disciplined. What's the moral of the story? Be very, very careful who you let lead the church. Be absolutely sure that they are truly called and qualified to be a spiritual leader. 
And when it comes to choosing elders, based on what Paul said here in verses 1 through 7, two basic questions need to be asked in order to determine if a man is called and qualified to serve as an elder. The first question is this, are they purely motivated? Are they purely motivated? That's in verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. So Paul says, listen, it's a good thing for a man to desire uh, to, to be an elder, to serve the body of Christ in that capacity as a shepherd of the sheep, as long as they want it for the right reasons. As you can imagine, some men over the years, over the centuries, uh, may have been selfishly motivated in pursuing the office of elder, or they may, may have been deceived about their own abilities, their own character, and, and I think that's why the second question is so critical. It's not enough uh, to just have a desire. That, that's very subjective. Um, becoming an elder requires more than just, just having a desire to be an elder, since, since uh, that, 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 again, is just maybe the guy's own feeling and impression a man's life must also meet certain qualifications or certain spiritual specifications. And so you have to ask yourself, number two, are they properly qualified? Are they purely motivated? And are they properly qualified? And in verses 2 through 7, Paul went on to list some very objective, observable, tangible qualifications to guide Timothy and us, by the way, in selecting the type of men who should serve as elders. And this checklist here for choosing church leaders protects the church from those men who may have a desire to serve, but who aren't qualified to serve. I think a basic principle is this, those whom God calls, he qualifies. If God has truly called you to serve as a pastor, an elder, he will also qualify you. Consequently, I think the ultimate test of whether or not a man is called to serve as an elder is to examine his life to see if it matches up with this, with this personal profile, if you will, of an elder that Paul paints in these verses. In other words, this is what, this is what an elder looks like, verses 2 through 7. And so Paul listed here 15 features of an elder, or 15 qualifications of an elder. Someone joked with me that last week I had no points, and this week I'm making up for it by having 15 points, Okay. So, uh, yeah, we're going to be here maybe to the annual meeting tonight. I'm not sure, but we'll do our best to whip through these 15 qualifications. But let's look at these one at a time. Number one, in order for a man to be an elder or a pastor, and again, I'm going to use the word elder, um, but the word is interchangeable with pastor, pastor, elder, uh, same, same person here is being described. And notice what it says, the first qualification, an overseer then must be above reproach. That term, above reproach, I believe, is the overarching, all-embracing, all-encompassing qualification that, that summarizes the entire list of qualifications. It, it literally means not able to be held or taken hold of. In other words, there's, there's nothing in a man's life that anyone can grab a hold of and make an issue of. He lives his life in such a way that affords no one the opportunity to make any valid accusation against him. Notice I said valid accusation because, listen, elders, pastors get accused oftentimes for many things, but the point is that there's no basis for those accusations and nothing can ultimately stick because it's just not true. He's above reproach. That's what that means. Nobody can say anything bad about him. And again, it doesn't mean that he's sinless, but he's blameless. Big difference between being sinless and being blameless. Again, it doesn't mean that the guy is perfect, but he has no obvious defect or sinful blight of any kind that taints his reputation or, or calls his character into question. And if he does something wrong that causes others to think badly of him or to think badly of the church, he's quick to make it right. I think my favorite example of what it looks like to be above reproach is Daniel. Daniel chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. If you remember uh, the other uh, commissioners and the satraps and and uh, the, these men who were exalted in, in these leadership positions in, in, in Babylon uh, didn't think highly of Daniel. 
and they were looking for a way to get him fired. And so they set out to dig up some dirt, uh, to find some skeletons in his closet. Um, sounds like a political election in America, right? Um, and so listen to what it says in Daniel chapter 6, verse 4. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. And as you know, because they couldn't find any legitimate dirt on him, they said, hey, let's get the king to make a decree that no one can pray to any other god but him for this next month, and then we're going to catch Daniel praying to God, because we know he does it three times a day. And that's what they had to resort to. But Daniel's a great example of a man who was above reproach. What a great challenge for us, right, to live our lives in such a way that someone could come through our lives with a fine-toothed comb and come up empty. So first of all, an elder must be above reproach. Now I think, again, the qualifications that follow uh, really define and illustrate what it means to be above reproach. Okay, so, so we need to be above reproach as pastors and elders. What does that look like practically? And so he goes on to list certain things. And, and, and the first thing that a man must be in order to be above reproach is the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. Now, I think most of you are probably aware that throughout church history, theologians, Bible scholars, pastors have in, interpreted this phrase, husband of one wife, to mean several different things. In fact, I pulled off every commentary uh, on the pastor epistles off my shelf and put them on my desk. I had over 30 commentaries. Uh, I'm a little obsessive when it comes to the pastoral epistles, I admit, okay? Um, because that is so formative for me as a pastor, for us as a church, and so I really stocked up on, on pastoral epistles commentaries. But, uh, so, so I laid them all out there, and, and, uh, and, and here are godly gifted men from the past and present who all don't agree on what Paul meant here. And I'm in the process of making a stack. This is the stack that believes this. This is the stack that believes this. And this is the stack where they don't say either. They, they sit on the fence. I'm going to throw those away. I want you to tell me which one, right? Uh, where, where do you stand? What's your position, right? But, but I've got these categories that I'm working through with these commentaries. But again, this is one of those rare places in Scripture where there are several valid interpretations that can be defended biblically. I want to be careful here that we don't start playing willy-nilly with Scripture. Uh, Typically, I think 95% of the time, uh, every passage has one clear interpretation and many applications, right? We're not that church that sits around in the living room and says, well, what do you think this passage means? What do you think this passage means? Well, I don't care what you think it means. I want to know what God meant it to mean, right? Uh, We're not that church, okay? So what did God mean by the husband of one wife? Well, again... There are a number of interpretations that that have a biblical basis. And so the point is you can't be dogmatic regarding your position, whatever it is. In fact, we as elders have had an ongoing discussion over the years on what we believe to be the the best way to interpret and apply this phrase. And to this day, there remains a healthy tension between us regarding this issue. And we respect one another's personal convictions and we maintain our convictions, I trust, with maturity and, and deference to one another. Um, but let's examine this phrase this morning in a little more depth than the others. In the Greek, this phrase contains three simple words, mia gunekos andra, which literally means one wife husband or one woman man. Now the interpretive challenge is who did Paul consider to be a one-woman man? And there are several possible ways to understand to whom Paul was referring. Number one, an elder or deacon must be married, must have a wife. In other words, single men are not to be elders or deacons. That's what some people believe. 
Um, however, this, I think, would contradict what Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 7 about the, the benefits, the advantages of remaining single. Paul encourages people to remain single, if at all possible, and there's some that God has called to singleness. And now, my question is, why would that disqualify someone uh, from being a pastor and elder? It seems like a very honorable decision, right, to, to remain single if the Lord grants you that grace. I think you, you would also have to say, logically, that if a man has to be married to be an elder, he must also have to have children to qualify as an elder because down in chapter, uh, down in chapter 4, he, he talks about he must manage his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Uh, again, if a man's not married, doesn't have children, um, then that somehow would disqualify him from being, being an elder. Now, again, I think Paul's assumption here is that most men... We'll have a wife and kids, right? It's very rare to find a guy that doesn't have a wife and kids. And, and, and furthermore, I think that generally speaking, elders are, are, tend to be the older, on the older side of things in the church, right? That they, they've, they, they, they're not newlyweds. Um, they don't necessarily have kids in diapers per se, but they're typically guys that have had a little bit more uh, season of life uh, experience. And so that's, that's one way you can interpret this, that, that this prohibits a man uh, who doesn't have a wife. Secondly, um, Paul could have meant that an elder or deacon, by the way, el- notice uh, it says a very same qualification here, uh, in verse 12, for deacons, deacons must be husbands of only one wife. Same exact phrase there. So this, is, this applies not just to elders, this also applies to deacons. So an elder or deacon must have only one wife at a time. That's another way to interpret this, that Paul was referring to here maybe polygamy, um, that you, you can't have multiple wives. Um, however, polygamy was uncommon in the Jewish society during Paul's day. It wasn't uh, historically a problem within the church. Uh, I would say this, this interpretation does have merit uh, if you are in a tribal missions context and some guy in East Japipi somewhere has six wives and he gets saved and what do you tell the guy? You know, do you divorce all your other wives and keep one or what? And then, well, I think at that point it just says, well, that guy uh, is, is not going to be qualified uh, right, to, to serve in a leadership role in the church. Um, in some way, you have to think that through, not to open up a whole other can of worms. Paul says, when you get saved, remain as you are. What does that mean in those tribal contexts? That's, that's the challenging situation. You think about that and let me know what you believe, all right? Um, you might help me think that through myself. So, so some say, okay, you got to be single, you got to be married. Some say you can't be a polygamist. How about this one? Number three, an elder or deacon must have only one living wife. Must only have one living wife. The way, the reason why they say living wife is is because what that means is that that um, it's possible for someone to uh, have been widowed and to be remarried, right? Um, but this, this, under this heading, and an elder must have only one living wife, what, they, what the, the view is, typically this, is that a man must have never been divorced and or remarried unless he was widowed. That's the point. That you've that you never been divorced or remarried unless you've been widows, widowed. Now, I would just say this. If this is Paul's intent here, you would expect him to be a little more explicit. He could have said that very easy. He must not be divorced. That would have been very simple for us, Right? Um, I'm going to ask Paul what, what was up with that when, when I get to heaven. Well, why couldn't you have been clear on this for us, Paul? Uh, we wasted a whole lot of time debating this thing. We could have just got down to business, right? Um, those who take this view often refer to 1 Timothy 5.9, where Paul used the very same phrase to describe widows who qualify for welfare in the church. They're a one-husband wife. In other words, they haven't been married multiple times. Um, they contend that in this context, this phrase clearly means that, that they could have only been married once. But in, in just a few verses later, Paul encourages these younger women who are widowed to get remarried. It is better than to, to be a widow dependent on the church to, if you're young, if you're a young woman, and, and, and to get remarried. It's better to be supported by a husband uh, than, than by the church. And so we know, based on the other other passages in Scripture, if your spouse dies 
God doesn't forbid you from remarrying as long as you marry what? In the Lord, right? 1 Corinthians 7.39, Romans chapter 7, verse 2. Uh, we, we are allowed to be remarried after we've been widowed. At the same time, and in a similar way, the Bible doesn't forbid us from getting remarried after a divorce if the grounds for divorce was adultery or abandonment. And again, this is leading us to a whole other discussion, another can of worms that you've got to open up in this, in this um, thinking this thing through. But we know God's design and desire for marriage is one man, one woman for, for life. Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That was a till death do you part covenant. And we also know that God hates divorce, Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. However, because God knows the tendency of people's hearts to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, he permits divorce on, uh, on one hand on, in the case of adultery. Look at Matthew chapter 5, Matthew 19. Um, it says that if anyone divorces his spouse except for immorality, um, that you're committing adultery. And I think the, the intent there is that when the covenant of marriage is broken by unfaithfulness, out of love and, 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 uh, and, and mercy for the, the faithful partner, the innocent partner, God frees them from the bond of marriage. In other words, they're remarriable after that. Um, he does the same thing for a Christian husband or wife who's abandoned by their unbelieving spouse. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, it says that they're, that they're free. They're no longer bound. If that unbeliever punts them and says, I don't want to be married to you anymore, uh, get out of my life, then they're free. And I think free implies that they're free to remarry. Whenever a couple comes to me for, for premarital counseling, my very first question is, have you either of you been married before? <laughs> and I got to sort that out and I got to find out if they're, according to scripture, remarriable. Because I don't want to be a party to uh, adultery and, and, and finding someone who was divorced for unbiblical grounds getting remarried. Well, the Bible says, no, you need to, you need to go be reconciled to your spouse or stay single. Um, again, these are challenging things to think through. But, but the point is this. In the same way there are grounds for remarriage after being widowed, there are grounds for remarriage after being divorced as a result of, what two things we said? Adultery and abandonment. I would also add this, that if a man was divorced before he came to Christ, before he became a Christian, you could argue that he's now a new creature in Christ and his divorce is under the blood. It, it doesn't count. It doesn't matter, right? Because everything that happens before we come to Christ, uh, it, it's a different world. That was our old self. Now this is the new self. It's almost like the clock starts ticking when you get saved, right? Uh, when it comes to qualification for elders. So if you interpret this, I mean, I'm just kind of talking out loud with you guys, thinking out loud, if you interpret this to mean that a man who's been divorced and or remarried is disqualified from being an elder or deacon, I think you're at odds with the rest of the Bible's teaching on divorce and remarriage. If, if the Bible allows for it on certain occasions, then why would that disqualify you? Um, I think this phrase, the husband of one wife, needs to be interpreted within the larger context of God's overall instruction on marriage and never be allowed to contradict what is taught in other places. This is where the analogy of Scripture principle of hermeneutics comes into play. You just can't say, okay, what does that verse mean? Because it really doesn't say a whole lot. We're not sure. So you've got to let other passages that are clear help you come to a clear interpretation of that unclear text. Now, having said all that, my personal conviction, this is my personal conviction, is that a man is disqualified from being an elder or a deacon if they've been divorced for any other reason than adultery or abandonment. Or if their lack of leadership resulted in the divorce, or if some other sin contributed to their divorce, or if the circumstances of their divorce may bring reproach on him personally or are potentially damaging to the reputation of the church. And I would also say this, because of the permanent consequences of divorce, I believe this could also apply to a divorce that occurred before a person was saved. Sometimes it happened before you were saved, but there's still some consequences, some things you're dealing with, right, uh, for the rest of your life. So in my opinion, it would be an extremely rare situation that a divorced man would qualify to be an elder or deacon. But 
personally, I'm not comfortable interpreting this phrase to mean that a divorce automatically disqualifies a man. Why? Because if you take that view, you're making the text say something it doesn't say. You have to say the husband of one living wife. You have to add things to the text. That doesn't say that. I think it's wiser just to take each situation on an individual basis and prayerfully consider if the circumstances are such that a man is above reproach in the eyes of the fellow church members at the present time. Notice it says an elder, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, not not has been above reproach or has been. It is, right? Present tense. These are present tense qualifications. And so there's 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 another view, an alternative view, that I personally hold to, and that is this, that an elder or deacon must be faithfully committed to his wife. What what did Paul mean when he said the husband of one wife? I think in the simplest terms, he was simply saying that he must be solely devoted to his wife and remain faithful to her. He must not be in the habit of lusting after other women or shouldn't have anything to do with any other women besides his wife. He must be sexually pure. In short, his marriage relationship must be irreproachable. And and frankly, I think this view, this interpretation, sets a much higher standard than simply saying that a divorced man is disqualified. Because listen, there's a lot of married men who've never been divorced who are not one-woman men. And so I think this final interpretation is the simplest, most problem-free, and more importantly, I think it best harmonizes everything the Bible teaches on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Okay, can we all take a deep breath now? That's a lot of stuff to think through. Uh, Come sit in my office and we'll discuss it with these 30 commentaries, right, that I've got. Uh, And you can find a commentary that would, I'm sure, articulate your position, your view. Uh, But ultimately, we need to do the best we can uh, of interpreting this right here, right? It's not what the commentaries say, it's what the Bible says. And uh, as long as we come with our Bible in hand and say, hey, this is my position and, and this is why I believe it based on this verse. In other words, it can't be just, just you, you know, you feel this way or you assume this way. No, I want to I know the, the exegetical reason why you believe that. Show, show, me, the, show me your exegesis. Show, show me where you get that from God's word. Um, and so that's an important issue there. But again, at the end of the day, what is the point? The guy is above reproach in his marriage. The, the way I heard somebody say it one time, and I really like this, he, he just said, you know what? The key to being an elder uh, is, you know, he said, I look for guys who are doing marriage and family well. I, I just look for men who are doing marriage and family well. And I love that. It's just very simple. Yeah, we want to have guys who have exemplary marriages, exemplary families. Um, that, that's the point of what Paul's saying. Now, let's move on, and, and we won't spend as much time on any of the other points as that, but we just had to get that, uh, get that uh, thought through in our minds. Number three, the third qualification or feature here is temperate. He says he must be above reproach, the husband and wife, and temperate. This word literally means without wine. And I don't think he's necessarily talking about drinking here because he goes down in verse 3. He mentions specifically about drinking, not, not addicted to wine. I think the idea here, what Paul had in mind here, is the opposite of being drunk. That is mental sobriety. In other words, an elder must not allow any excess in his life that diminishes his ability to think clearly, to make sound judgments. He's to be well-balanced in all areas of his life, not self-indulgent. He has mastery over all of his appetites. He's not a slave to anything. That always scares me when it comes to Oreos. Sometimes I wonder if I'm a slave to those things. But listen to what Spurgeon said. Spurgeon said this in lectures to my students, let us have every passion and habit under due restraint. If we are not masters of ourselves, we are not fit to be leaders in the church. Great quote. The point here is that elders don't act rashly, but they remain calm, cool, collected. They're able to keep their head in all situations. Listen, Trust me, elders get into, get, get into all sorts of, of, of crazy situations from time to time. They have to deal with very serious problems, difficult decisions, intense pressure, um, accusations. Uh, therefore, you, you, you need to be emotionally, physically, mentally, and spiritually stable. Um, 
You can't be tossed to and fro like the winds uh, and the waves depending on what's going on in the life of the church. So you're temperate. Number four, he's prudent. He must be prudent. This word is very similar to temperate. It implies being self-controlled and being sober-minded. An elder is to be serious about spiritual things, not frivolous. It doesn't mean you can't have a sense of humor and, and, and joke around and, and have to be somber all the time. You don't have to be a prude and, you know, saying, I'm a man of the cloth and I can't smile and, you know. No, that's not what he's talking about. I think the point is you must avoid having the reputation of being a clown, being a cut-up, being a goof-off, acting in a way that's inappropriate for someone who's serving in the office of elder. You must be sensible, wise, discerning. Be able to exercise common sense in dealing with people and their, their problems. You're able, you're able to see things for, for what they really are. You, you know people and you know how they respond and you also know yourself well. You have an accurate perception of yourself and there's not this huge gap between what, what you see in yourself and what others see in you. So you're prudent. Number five, it says you need to be respectable. Respectable, the word here is cosmos, which is which has the idea of being systematic and, and orderly. And so I think the idea here is that an elder must lead an orderly, disciplined life. He needs to be uh, fulfilling his duties and responsibilities in a, in a systematic, orderly fashion. He'd, he shouldn't have a chaotic lifestyle filled with, 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 with unorganized activities and un, unaccomplished plans and, and tasks. Um, you shouldn't get the impression that, that one of the elders is like running around like a chicken with their head cut off. That's not the kind of guy you want to be as an elder. His life is in order. He knows how to order his priorities, and everything gets done in its proper time. Number six, he must be hospitable. He must be hospitable. Uh, Now, what comes into our minds when we think of being hospitable uh, is is usually usually maybe, uh, you know, China and doilies and, and, and women cooking and entertaining and well interesting that that's not what this word literally means literally it means love of strangers love of strangers Uh, an elder must be gracious and generous towards everyone but especially towards newcomers i mean uh, an elder should be leading the charge when it comes to hey there's a new person let's go let's go meet them let's go help them get plugged in and and elders should have a heart for those kind of people they have the ability to make visitors feel at home. They, they don't show favoritism. They're not cliquish. They, they go beyond the smile and the, the handshake after church on Sunday or, or, or some superficial visit during the week. They, they lovingly and sacrificially give themselves to all, give all that they have to serve the flock. That's what it means to be hospitable, just to, just to, just to give all that you are, all that you have to serve the sheep. And a very practical way to be hospitable is obviously to invite people into your home and, and enjoy some fellowship and serve them food and care for them, and, and, and that's a very practical way. Um, so you need to be hospitable. Number seven, it says here that they need to be able to teach. They need to be able to teach. Now, the primary task of, of a pastor of, or an elder is to preach and teach God's Word. And so consequently, a pastor, an elder, must have a good working knowledge of the Bible and be able to clearly and accurately explain it to others and help them practically apply it to their lives. It's what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2. He said this, uh, the things which you have heard from me and the presence of many witnesses and trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You've got to be able to pass on the truth to others, and how can you pass on the truth to others if you don't know it yourself? Um, I think elders must be astute enough theologically that they can spot error and they can show a person why a certain speaker or author is wrong uh, or, or harmful. In fact, I love how Titus describes this attribute. Uh, in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, it says, Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. That's how Titus, or that's how Paul uh, clarified, what does it mean to be able to teach in 1 Timothy 3? In, in Titus, he says, well, let me tell you what it means to be able to teach. He needs to be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. And because of that clarification, uh, we as elders don't think that 
this able to teach necessarily means that an elder has to be a good upfront speaker. I don't expect the other elders to, to be able to fill the pulpit if I'm out of town, if I'm traveling, if I'm on a mission trip. I don't say, okay, which one of you elders is going to fill the pulpit? Because the Bible says you need to be able to teach. I don't think that's what that implies there. Not every elder devotes all their time to the formal teaching and, and preaching of God's Word. In fact, 1 Timothy 5 verse 17 says that the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. In other words, there's some elders uh, who, who don't necessarily work hard at preaching and teaching, but doesn't mean they're not able to teach. So there's a distinction there between maybe teaching elders and, and, and serving elders. I think an elder simply needs to be confident and capable enough to open up God's word and instruct and counsel people with it in a variety of contexts, whether that be in a small group, in their living room, or counseling someone in the hallway after, after church, or personally discipling somebody at Starbucks, right? They're comfortable with the scriptures, and, and, and they can teach truth and refute error. Let me add this um, thought that I think is implied here in an elder's ability to, to teach is that, I think, again, there's an assumption that he is striving to practice what he teaches or practice what he preaches. And I think when, a peop- when people see a pastor or elder living out what he teaches, it, it makes him believable, it makes him credible. So I think it's able to teach not just with your lips, but also with your, with your life. Number eight, another feature here is Paul says they can't be addicted to wine, not addicted to wine. Uh, An elder shouldn't have a drinking problem, essentially, is what he's saying, or be known for all the things that come with having a drinking problem, a belligerent attitude, you're frequenting bars or saloons. Um, Again, the Bible doesn't say that it's a sin to drink, but it's a sin to get drunk, right? We know that Ephesians 5, 18, do not be drunk with wine. I think it's interesting in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, right here in the context of the pastoral epistles, Paul says to Timothy, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Some of you say, well, that's my life verse. Uh, no, don't, don't make that your life verse, right? Um, what, what was Paul doing? Paul was encouraging Timothy to drink a little wine for medicinal purposes. Uh, apparently, he had a stomach problem. And in those days, the water was not pure, wasn't clean, it wasn't uh, uh, hygienic, and so he says, hey, drink wine instead, and it, probably it's because, the reason why I had to encourage or coax Timothy to drink some wine is because probably Timothy was abstaining to be a good example, and he says, hey, Timothy, you need something for your stomach, man, have a little wine, it's not going to kill you, okay, you're not going to blow your testimony, your reputation, um, now, we do know that throughout the, the Bible, God gives very strong warnings to leaders against drinking. Proverbs is a good example. Proverbs 20, Proverbs 23, Proverbs 31. Um, there's just wisdom um, in, in if you're a leader that you don't drink. Dr- drinking and leading don't mix well. And so, again, this is my opinion. This is my conviction is that because an elder or pastor serves in such a visible position and has the potential to influence countless lives, I think he should hold himself to a higher standard when it comes to alcohol and have, a, have the mentality that others may, but I cannot. Others may, but I cannot. Now, I'm not going to sit in judgment on someone who has a glass of wine or a beer from time to time. Uh, that, that's, that, that's not forbidden in Scripture. But you know what? They may be able to, but you know, because of the position that God's called me to, I can't do that. And that's my personal conviction, is that I don't drink. Why? Because we live in a society where alcohol has destroyed countless lives, countless families, even in our own church, and it's a huge moral and spiritual problem. Why would I want to do anything to to support that or be a part of that? And even if I'm able to handle uh, having a drink from time to time, uh, someone might happen to see me with a drink in my hand, very innocent, having some Italian food with my wife on a date, right? And they say, well, the pastor drank, so it must be okay. And then they find out they can handle it. And then I've caused someone to what? Stumble. So that's my personal conviction um, about what it means to be not addicted to wine. 
Number nine is not pugnacious. Not pugnacious here. We're moving through the list here. We're in verse three. Uh, An elder cannot be known as a fighter. That's what it means to be pugnacious. He's not someone with a a short temper or who who resorts to to verbal or physical abuse. He's not easily irritated. He's He's not provoked. He's not like a kind of a prize fighter just kind of sitting in the corner of every you know, service ready for someone to take a swing at him because he's ready to give one back, you know. Um, he's not that way. They, they, they need to, uh, because elders often find themselves in tense, heated situations, right, they can't be that type of person that settles matters with their fists. That wouldn't be a good thing. Oh, the elders got in a fight last Wednesday morning, you know, and there was blood on the table and, you know, that wouldn't be good, right? They need to be able to handle things with a cool mind and a gentle spirit. They're not pugnacious. They're not you could say it this way, they're not argumentative. Um, they don't like to argue and fight and wrangle. We'll look at that a little bit later. Uh, number 10 is they need to be gentle. And this is kind of a rose that, that stands out like, like between two thorns here. You've got not pugnacious, gentle, and then peaceable. Um, an, an elder is to be patient considerate of others' feelings. They need to be gracious. They need to be forbearing. They need to be able to put up with, with, with other people and make allowances for people's slowness or awkwardness or rudeness. Um, listen, sometimes sheep get ornery and feisty and out of frustration. It would be very easy to be domineering and, and beat the sheep into submission. Hey, I got this staff for a reason. Watch out. You know? um, but listen, an elder must gently, patiently lead the flock without getting upset or easily offended. There needs to be a sweet reasonableness, as I've heard it said before. There just needs to be a sweet reasonableness about that person's, about that man's personality. He must be quick to forgive, not carry around resentments. He must seek to forget the evil things that people have done or said to him and remember simply the good in people. I think that's what it means to be gentle. Number 11 is uncontentious, and, and that's how it, peaceable is put uh, in, in some translations, uncontentious or peaceable. In other words, an elder must not be quarrelsome. He shouldn't be a troublemaker. He should be a peacemaker. He shouldn't be an argumentative person who's always insisting on his rights or stubbornly demanding his way all the time or, or, or be that guy that always has to have the last word. He knows how to humbly defer to others in areas of personal conviction or, or preference. I mean, can you imagine a, 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 an elder team made up of a group of men who don't know how to defer. I mean, you've got a bunch of contentious men, pugnacious men, sitting in, 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 in the conference room every Wednesday morning. How do you think that's going to go? It's not going to be pretty, right? The, the point is that the men who are serving on an elder team, in order to make unanimous decisions... Right? They can't be headstrong. Uh, you, you have to have the maturity to, to know when to defer. And they, they, they need to know how to disagree without being disagreeable. Again, in the same context, Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient with wronged, with gentleness, Correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. I love that. And then number 12, it says that he must be free from the love of money. He must be free from the love of money. An elder must not be preoccupied or overly interested in amassing material possessions. He should not always be thinking of monetary uh, rewards. He can't be in it for the money, if you will, and, and try to use his position uh, for for, uh, for profit or for, for gain. He must be content with and have faith in God's loving provision for him. Uh, Hebrews 13.5 talks about uh, being content with, with the Lord's provision for you. Um, and even here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment, for we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I think Paul was probably referring to maybe some of the spiritual leaders, some of the false leaders, I said, false teachers that had infiltrated the church. 
And so an elder should not be anxious about his financial future. He should have a Matthew 6.33 mindset. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All these things will be added unto you as well. I think it's interesting when you look at a lot of spiritual leaders today and, and, and their luxurious lifestyles. Um, it's just interesting, right? These luxurious lifestyles of, of, of false teachers today stand in stark contrast to Paul, who even though he was entitled to be supported financially uh, by those that he taught and shepherded and ministered to, he chose instead to make tents on the side all night sometimes, stay up all night to, 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 to earn a living, right, to avoid being a burden to anyone, and so his motives regarding money could never be called into question. And so Paul's a good example of what it means to be free from the love of money. And then we come to number 13, which is another uh, um, qualification that's been uh, debated uh, over the years. Verse 4, it says he must manage his family well. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. <clears throat> but if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Again, what is the simplest way to understand what Paul was saying here? Is that he must, an elder pastor must have an exemplary home life where everything is under control. His wife's under control, his kids are under control, his finances are under control. His wife must be respectful and submissive to his loving leadership. His children, while not perfect and problem-free, must obey and honor him. He must be actively involved in raising his children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord while guarding against the tendency to, to exasperate, uh, to frustrate, to discourage, to provoke them to anger. Uh, he must walk that fine line between being too harsh, being too lenient, and when problems and difficulties arise, which they will, because the pastor doesn't have a perfect family, right? Uh, he must be able to provide the wise guidance and, response, and responsible care necessary to lead his family through the storms of life. And what is, what is Paul's point is, verse 5, if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? In other words, if a, if a man can't care for the needs of his own family members, then why would we think he would be competent to care for the needs of the members of an entire church? And really, the bottom line is a man's household is the proving ground for whether or not he's qualified to lead the household of God. If you can't lead your own household, then how can you lead the household of God? Now, we have to turn over to Titus here real quick. Titus chapter 1. Verse 6, in the same way that Paul expanded on what does it mean to be able to teach, uh, in, in 1 Timothy 3, he, he expands, I think, this idea of what does it mean to be a good manager of your home. Notice it says here in Titus chapter 1, a very similar list of qualifications, by the way, almost exactly the same. Some would call this maybe the color commentary on what Paul said in, in 1 Timothy 3. But notice this, namely, if, if, if any man, well, look at verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, okay, I'm going to tell you who to appoint as elders. If any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. So you see how that's uh, expanding a bit on giving a little more detail as to what Paul was saying in 1 Timothy 3 about being a good manager of your home. Now, the question is, the debate, the argument is, what did Paul mean when he said having children who believe? Uh, at face value, it looks like in order for a guy to be an elder, in order for a guy to be a pastor, his kids must be believers. They must be Christians. Um, but what you need to understand is that word, believe, in the Greek, pista or pistuo, is translated believe in some places, but also is translated simply as faithful, as faithful. 2 Timothy 2.2 is a good example of that. That word faithful men is the word pistu or pista when it says that you are to pass on or entrust these to faithful men. It doesn't mean believing men who will be able to teach others. It just means faithful men. And so the challenge is to determine whether or not Paul was saying that an elder's kids have to be saved or 
merely faithful. And, and you say, well, man, I don't know. It's hard to decide. Well, I think that the next phrase, um, while it could support either interpretation, believing children or faithful children, it seems to me to better describe a faithful child than a believing child. He says, having children to believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Literally, not accused of wild living. The, the same word is used in Luke 15 of the prodigal son who squandered his wealth through loose living, it's referred to there. It's talking about that your kids should not be rebellious, that, that they're not able to be ruled, they're insubordinate, they're unsubmissive. I think the point is simply this, that an elder's children shouldn't have the reputation of being wild and out of control. The way that they live their lives should not bring public shame on their father or his ministry. And I would add this, that I, don't, I think this qualification is not just limited to while your kids are living under your roof. I think this is a qualification that could potentially last a lifetime. Because it may be that your adult kid goes off the deep end at some point, and, and it could. It doesn't always disqualify you, but it could, potentially, depending on the ramifications. And that's for the elders in that church to determine uh, if this is in, in some way disqualifying for one of their fellow elders. And, and that's where elders are really a band of brothers, and they have to go to the scriptures together and hopefully humbly determine uh, thing, uh, determined a decision uh, in some of these sticky situations. Uh, again, I, I think Paul's intent, looking at Titus 1, looking at 1 Timothy 3, is that an elder's children must be obedient and respectful and well-behaved. And, and again, this provides evidence that they are on their way to coming to know Christ or they have come to know Christ or at least they've not rejected the gospel. And I think generally speaking, children who are raised according to biblical principles do end up committing their lives to follow Christ. But there are some exceptions. We know that where children raised in very godly homes with very godly parents have rebelled against the Lord. And at that point, I think all you can do is examine your life to see if, if in any way you've exasperated your child through maybe inconsistency or hypocrisy of some kind. And, and, and some might argue that if an elder can't lead his own children to Christ, then, then why should we expect him to be able to lead anyone else to Christ? That's, I've read that in commentaries. Hey, if a, if a guy can't lead his own kids to Christ, how, how, how could we expect him to lead other people to Christ outside his family? But I, I, I have a hard time making that logical leap because we need to forget, never forget that none of us can save our kids. You can't save your kids. Ultimately, God is sovereign over whether or not your kids get saved. So uh, I don't know how that all fits together with uh, an elder's kids have to be believers. Some would say, well, if God's called you uh, to, to be a, a, an elder, then he will also ha have sovereignly ordained that your kids will get saved. Well, I don't know. That's, in my opinion, overthinking a little bit. Um, so again, point is, model family, model dad, uh, working hard at being the, the husband and the father that God's word says all of us should be. Number 14, we're almost there. Notice he says, not a new convert, back in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and not a new convert, verse 6, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. In other words, an elder must not be a baby Christian. He must be a mature Believer, This is a, a horticultural term, not a new convert, meaning newly planted. He must not be a newly planted believer. What you think about when you plant a new tree, you put a strong stake next to it and you tie the plant to that stake and it causes it to grow straight in the midst of the winds and, until it's firmly rooted in the ground. What a great picture of discipleship. Uh, you, you don't want a guy, right, who's just kind of tied up to another stake at the time because he's a, just a baby plant, a newly planted thing. And, and why is that? Why, why is that a, a, an important qualification? Well, first of all, a, a new Christian doesn't have the biblical wisdom and maturity to deal with the issues that elders face. Now, there's some extremely complicated things that, that sometimes we, we end up saying, we don't know what to do in this situation. We've, we've studied the scriptures, we prayed, we still don't know what to do. Lord, help us. I think an elder must be more spiritually mature or as spiritually mature as the people he's called to shepherd and lead. 
Being an elder calls for someone who has experience in the things of God and the, and the truths of God's word. They, they've been seasoned by life's joys and heartbreaks and triumphs and failures. So I think this is, this is more than, 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 than uh, this is more spiritually speaking than chronologically speaking. It's not like, well, you got to be at least 40 before we'll let you be an elder. It's, it's more spiritually speaking. And some men mature faster than others. And that's just part of the providence of God. But notice the concern that, that Paul has here. Not a new convert. Why? So that he'll not become what? Did you guys fall asleep on me? So that he will not become what? Conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. The, the greater concern is if you put an immature man uh, in, in, in leadership prematurely and you elevate them alongside other mature godly men, it may go to his what? Head. And he'll get puffed up. He'll become conceited. He'll be tempted to think more highly of himself than he ought. He'll have an exaggerated sense of his own self-importance. And so the church needs to be very careful not to give a new believer too much responsibility too soon. We need to guard young believers from falling into the same trap that Satan did. And that was what? Pride. And what was the punishment or condemnation for pride was humiliation. Satan was cast out of heaven. We know Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goeth before a what? fall. So he must not be a new convert. And then finally, number 15, he must have a good reputation outside the church. It's not enough that, that he has a good reputation inside the church amongst his fellow believers. He has to have a good reputation outside the church with unbelievers. Verse 7, he must have a good reputation with those outside of the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. He must be well respected by those in the community. He must have a good re- reputation uh, at work, uh, in, his, in, his, in his subdivision, you know, where he gets his car serviced, you know, and on and on and goes. Does he pay his bills on time? Uh, what does he do when the neighbor kid kicks the ball through his living room window? Um, how does he treat the grocery checker or the waitress? What, what do people at work think of him? These, these are important questions, and we, we need to never forget that, that the world is watching And they form their opinion of the church largely by the conduct and the character of its leaders. Trust me, I've had conversations with with people just that I've met out randomly in in our community. And and, and they, because they find out I'm a pastor, they want to immediately tell me about the other spiritual leaders uh, that they've been exposed to in their lives. And and I'll tell you what, they have a, we've got a bad rap, (laughs) We got a bad reputation as, as pastors. My, my, my neighbor that we had for a number of years, he doesn't live across the street from us anymore, but, but he told me after we met, and it was probably a year and a half or two years before the guy would even look at me, let alone say anything to me. And he, he admitted, he said, Ken, when I, when, you, when I found out you were a pastor, I didn't want anything to do with you because you guys are all a bunch of hypocrites. I was like, whoa, nice to meet you, you know? <laughs> But I was like, dude, I agree. I, I'm sorry. We, we got a problem. I, I agree with you. And, and, and just by agreeing with him, the, it's almost like the, 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 the ice broke and we were able to begin a relationship and we would sit and talk. And, and uh, I related to a lot of the things he was concerned about in the church. And uh, we developed a very good friendship over the years. But I tell you what, it, it got off to a really rocky start. Why? Because the world is often very shrewd in their judgment of character, and they are quick. They are quick to spot hypocrisy and inconsistency in the church. And so, uh, consequently, an elder needs to take special care to maintain his reputation as a man of integrity in the community. If he doesn't, instead of being an asset to the church, he's going to become a liability. And so an elder that has a bad reputation can really destroy the testimony of the entire church. And again, notice it says here, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. This is one of the reasons why Satan works so hard to destroy the reputation of pastors and elders, spiritual leaders. He's pictured here as a a hunter of souls, setting snares, trying to trip up and trap leaders. Why? Because when a pastor or an elder stumbles in sin, it devastates the entire congregation and the entire Christian community. And I think that's why Satan aims his, his most fiery darts at the spiritual leaders because he knows if he can get them to fall, then he can get the entire ministry to fall. 
And so the higher up a man rises in leadership, the, the farther the fall, the wider the impact, the greater reproach on Christ and his church. So he must have a good reputation with those outside the church. So there you have it. A checklist for selecting elders. These are the standards that God has set for any man who desires to exercise oversight in the local church. Someone said it this way, biblical history demonstrates that people will seldom rise above the spiritual level of their leadership. In other words, as like people like priests. Hosea says that, like people like priests. Every church will be a reflection of its leadership. And that's why scripture sets the bar so high for those who serve as spiritual leaders in the church, because the elders set the standard for the rest of the church to follow, for the rest of the flock to follow. The shepherds are to lead by their example. Follow me, Paul said, as I follow Christ. He was constantly telling people, inviting people to follow him as he followed Christ. And so the role of the pastor elder isn't just to to teach the flock how to live a godly life by his words, but to show them how to live a godly life by his example. And so the elders are to model what the rest of the church is to be. See, you were just sitting there thinking, oh, these are just qualifications for pastors and elders. I'm, I'm kind of sitting back here kind of safe as a church member. Guess what? Every single one of these qualities is commanded of every believer and other passages throughout the Bible. You can find all of these commanded of you as an individual Christian. And so consequently, while these qualities directly apply to pastors and elders, they indirectly apply to all of you. And whether you're a, a man or a woman, whether you aspire to be an elder or, or not, it doesn't matter. You should strive to become the kind of person that Paul describes here in, in 1 Timothy. So how does your life compare? Do you look anything like this person that Paul describes in this passage? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the clarity of your word, and while there are portions of your word that aren't as clear as we would like them to be, uh, you've given us the whole counsel of scripture to try to figure it out as best we can, and Lord, you know our heart is we just want to be faithful to the scriptures, we don't want to be ruled by our own, our own opinions, our own interpretations, Father, but uh, I pray that uh, we've been faithful today as we've looked together at, at this text, and Lord, that we've uh, maintained the high standard that you uh, uh, assumed and expected and demanded uh, of those who would take on the role of pastor and elder in a local church. And so continue to help us, Father, as we examine the men that, that, that you've raised up and that we've put forward to this body. Help us to be uh, faithful to uh, look at the, 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 the scriptures and what the scriptures teaches, not our own opinions or, or perceptions or preferences. And Lord, I do pray that you would just continue to raise up men like this in our church. And Lord, that all of us would feel the weight and the responsibility to be these kind of people as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.